Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Moderna is reducing vaccine deliveries this month, and the Canadian government doesn't know why. Anybody else having a sense of deja vu about this? We'll discuss this with Abigail Beeman from Global News. Doug Ford says there could be an announcement early next week regarding the reopening of the economy. This comes as several small businesses across Canada are pledging to defy the lockdown if they don't lift it. And the federal conservatives are calling for a special House of Commons committee devoted to Canada-U.S. relations. We'll get the details from Power Group President Laura Babcock. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big story, of course, once again, are vaccines, or should we say lack of vaccines. Uh, Yesterday, another announcement and another disappointment. This is kind of like Groundhog Day. I know that was earlier this week, but every day it's like, you know, all again, well, we're not getting as much as we thought. And yesterday, Major General Danny Fortan, who's in charge of the vaccine rollout, told a virtual news conference, well, he doesn't know the size of this reduction. We are originally expected a slightly higher number, around 249,000. Um, and that no, that number is uh, the quantities that we expect to receive uh, remain to be confirmed by uh, the manufacturer. So at this time, I, I can't really tell you what the quantity will be. Uh, boy, that's become a, a redundant theme over the last couple of days. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Abigail Beeman. Abigail, of course, Ottawa correspondent for Global News, who's been following this story. Abigail, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again on the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, trying to get information about this thing is it's got to be like, I, I don't know exactly what, I can't even think of an, an apt analogy at this stage. Uh, you know, we we went from, what was it, about six weeks ago, where our government was bragging about the fact that we had more vaccines per capita than any other country in the world. Uh, and well, now we're we... bragging about that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Based on what? <laughs> right. Well, because they ha- they've purchased more vaccines per capita, but as you point out, none of them are actually here yet. So their ability to use that line uh, has less and less uh, resonance, shall we say, as the number of vaccines in this country are actually uh, so minimal. At last check, uh, there's a there's a great online database uh, as part of the University of Oxford called Our World in Data, and Canada is sitting at 34th place uh, at last check uh, in terms of per, in terms of per capita uh, vaccinations of, of of people. So it's really hard to argue with that point, uh, though the Liberal government continues to talk about how much they've diversified the portfolio and bought as many vaccines as possible. Yeah, but again, there's that disconnect. And you guys that are doing this on a daily basis up in Ottawa must have your head spinning. I mean, we saw Fortin's announcement yesterday. And then what was it? An hour later, the prime minister did his daily thing, of course, from from Rideau Cottage and talking about, you know, everybody who wants one's going to get one and we're on track. And I figured, don't you two talk to each other? Right. Well, you know, I, I think in terms of head spinning, uh, one example that I'll that I'll give that really stuck with me as the reporter covering this yesterday uh, is that uh, listeners may remember the issue of five versus six doses out of a Pfizer bottle. So yeah. Pfizer is petitioning Health Canada to change the label to say that you can actually get six doses out of a bottle instead of five, which would technically increase the number of doses that we have, right? Health Canada has not approved this request yet, and we learned about a week ago when the story first surfaced that you need a special kind of syringe in order to reliably get those doses out. So some people have been able to do it with the regular syringes, but really in order to reliably get six doses out of a bottle instead of five, you need this special, uh, what's called a low dead space uh, syringe. And so the procurement minister, Anita Anand, has been saying for days, oh, you know, we're proactively ordering them. We've ordered millions. 
Well, first, it took days for us to get confirmation that actually zero of them had arrived in the country. And then Anita Nan said, I believe it was two days ago now, that they've increased their order to 64 million and that they were coming within days. They were going to be here. Like, okay, sounds good. And then yesterday, uh, Major General Danny Fortan says, yes, they're coming this week, but oh, they have to get tested first. So we're thinking maybe February 15th before provinces can get them. And, you know, it's one thing that you can't talk about vaccine contracts because of the privacy and confidentiality and the contract law around that. But it's totally another to not have offered that piece of information that, you know, yes, we've ordered them, but guys, you're not going to get these syringes for another couple of weeks. To me, that was a clear example of some really poor communication around this. As you've been reporting over the last couple of weeks about this now, though, Abigail, this, this lack of transparency about this whole process is, is very frustrating. Is, is this a, a made-in-Canada problem, or are other countries that are contracted with Pfizer and Moderna uh, going through the same thing? Uh, it, it's a good question. There are really, it's, it's a complicated answer, uh, let's say. So there is this issue of the EU export controls. Uh, Canada is not on the list of exempt countries. So there is this worry that Canada uh, won't be exempt from the EU's new uh, export controls. So far, so good is sort of what the government is saying on that, that, you know, this week's shipments haven't been uh, affected. But I specifically asked that question yesterday because we have zero, zero information as to March's doses, okay? We're still trying to get mm-hmm. the last week of February sorted out, which makes it very difficult for provinces to plan the you know nuts and bolts of their rollout if they don't know how much they're getting three weeks from now when this is a two-dose uh, requirement. So uh, anyway, in terms of, in terms of uh, March, I asked uh, the officials yesterday, how much is the EU trade uh, uh, export control situation you know, threatening March, or how much are you worried about that? Wouldn't answer at all, just kept repeating that, you know, this week's, uh, this week's shipments are fine. Uh, or so they say. I mean, they could promise all they want until they actually get off the plane and say, here, we've got them. It, it means nothing to us, I suppose. But that's that's part of the disconnect here. I mean, you're getting mixed messaging here. Uh, one from 410, of course, talking what what's really happening and, and then promises and more promises from, from the ministers and from the prime minister in situations like this. And, and that gap between the two, Abigail, clearly is getting wider and wider. Well, we'll see. Uh, We didn't hear from the Prime Minister uh, yesterday, uh, which was when we heard from uh, Major General Fortin. We'll we'll hear from the Prime Minister today, and then we do expect another update from officials afterwards. But it is generally Thursdays that we're getting these vaccine updates uh, from from uh, from the people in charge. And I wouldn't say that they have, you know, a lot of information either. They're, they're calling them technical briefings. Um, it's a sort of like a, a look behind the curtain. Usually when journalists go to a technical briefing, we're provided with a whole bunch of documentation, maybe a PowerPoint presentation, some, you know, ins and outs of, of the subject matter. And it's usually a chance for journalists to understand things before they put questions to the minister or the government. These Health Canada technical briefings, like not even a one piece of paper, like not even a one pager on what's coming. You just have to really like hang on to the every word of of the official speaking in terms of the number of doses that are coming. You know, maybe if if they know what they are. So it is really a, a lack of information. Uh, and I should mention, it's you know a situation that changes uh, regularly and obviously is a fluid situation. Uh- Bad pun there, but okay. Uh, the, the, and therein lies uh, the concern about you know the mixed numbers here. You, you reference in one of your reports of, uh, about the Economist Intelligent Unit, the EIU, uh, that, as you say, ranks Canada just, I guess, with Brazil way down the list now, as opposed to being number one like we were. Uh, the, the report went on to say uh, that, uh, you know, notwithstanding what the Prime Minister is saying, that usually, what did he say by about the fall, anybody that wants a vaccine is going to get and one. They're suggesting. Yeah. 
they're suggesting that may well be summer of 2022. Now, these 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 are independent people. I mean, the, you know, the EIU is is a, not a Canadian organization. They're just looking at data and looking at numbers. Right. Uh, and they're factoring in a whole bunch of other things, not just the fact that we seem to have trouble getting stuff on, on the ground here, but they're also talking about the complexity of actually distribution in a country as big as Canada. And I know that uh, yesterday, uh, Major General Fortin talked about that, uh, about trying to get some of these uh, these vaccines up to some of these remote areas. And uh, not an easy task. No, that is certainly a logistical challenge. And especially, um, you know, with the Pfizer vaccine requiring such ultra cold temperatures in terms of storage, uh, the, the, and we didn't even sort of get into the specifics of how uh, this week's Moderna shipment is uh, less than expected, although we did have a heads up about that last week. But that really impacts the territories and these remote areas that absolutely could not be reliant on the Pfizer vaccine in terms of all the complications around um, shipping. So that certainly is a complicating factor. But every minister and the prime minister are consistent in in continuing this promise that, uh, yes, any Canadian who wants a vaccine will get one by the end of September. What about the uh, the the other guys on the block that are developing? We know the J and J is close to, uh, to to distribution at stage like this, and there are others. Uh, does that yeah. factor in here at all, Abigail? Or is, are these among those large numbers of stuff that we've purchased and and been promised, but I haven't seen yet? Well, it's an interesting question, and the the procurement minister repeated yesterday when she testified at committee that that end of September promise is based on the vaccine, the two vaccines that have been approved. So Moderna and Pfizer are the ones that we currently have. Uh, AstraZeneca is really, um, I think, closest to, to being approved, although we didn't get any new information about that yesterday. And that's Health Canada making that ultimate decision. But uh, so AstraZeneca and uh, J&J are under the rolling review by Health Canada and also most recently and worth noting, Novavax. So Novavax mm-hmm. is the uh, is the last of the or the most recent, I'm sorry, of those seven uh, companies to ask Health Canada to be part of its uh, rolling review. And Novavax is the, is the one uh, company that Canada was able to sign a deal with to get those vaccines eventually made in Canada. So that was the big announcement from the Prime Minister earlier this week about Novavax being produced out of Montreal. But, you know, first, it has to get approved. That facility has to be built. That facility has to be certified. So not happening anytime soon and certainly not happening before the September deadline. One of the more remarkable things in your reporting yesterday, though, was uh, the, the, the statement from Mr. Anand uh, that as they signed all of these agreements, and of course we don't know the details, as you've been telling us, uh, about a lot of these contracts, uh, that I guess they, the government asked each and every one of them, would you produce yes. this stuff in Canada? And the answer right across the board was that, no, not doing that. Any explanation right. as to why no? Yeah, and, and that's with the exception of Novavax, and that's, I yeah. guess, why the government is so excited about Novavax. But they, according to uh, Minister Anand, the reason was just Canada's lack of capacity in terms of biomanufacturing. We just, uh, it, it, it's become quite uh, patently clear during this pandemic that we really don't have the capacity that we once did. We used to manufacture mm-hmm. uh, a whole lot more vaccines out of this country. We don't anymore. And so according to Minister Anand, the countries, you know, looked at Canada and, and thought that it wouldn't be worth the the cost and the scale in, in terms of, of scaling up to what they needed in order to, to build uh, or in order to produce vaccines here. 
and I know there's two sides to everything and probably multiple sides to this too and we understand because you guys have been looking into that uh, for quite some time the Ottawa Bureau and and yeah Canada has really dropped the ball because they re- they reduced funding and eliminated funding I guess and places like Kalat that were you know viable businesses a few years ago have, have essentially been mothballed but the companies themselves we have to remember these are all private companies uh, and and they they have contracted over the last number of years too and and moved to, well Brussels and Germany and and some other places like that and kind of centralized there so it, it, was, it was just seems to be a whole bunch of circumstances that came together right now uh then the pandemic right. comes along and we all got caught short here didn't we right and that's and that's the government's argument and this is sort of earlier this week news but when we're talking about novavax uh, being able to build with, through the national research council in montreal of course the question that uh, the prime minister and others thought over and over again was okay but if this isn't going to help before september you know why are you why are you announcing all these huge investments there were a couple of other canadian companies uh that he announced that also are scaling up their own manufacturing productions and and working on their own vaccines and the answer from both the prime minister and these industry experts uh came back that you know we don't know what's going to happen with the coronavirus uh, next year the year after the year after that we don't know if it's going to require a vaccine we don't know uh, sorry a booster shot we don't know um, about the variants. And so because of that unknown and because of the situation Canada found itself in this time around, you know, we want to be prepared for the future. What about the politics of this? Uh, the premiers, of course, are, are all pointing to the prime minister right now saying, you know, look, we've got a great plan here. And it's hard for us to actually right. ascertain that because they haven't got any product to sell or to distribute at this stage. Right. Uh, your, your colleague David Aiken is reporting that in some of the latest polling right now, the prime minister and the liberal government are down about three points, I guess, over they were about a week and a half or so ago. There's a there's a political price to be paid for this, isn't there? Uh, Well, there is. And I think that's where this uh, September deadline becomes so key in terms of whether uh, how this rollout eventually goes. You know, if it turns out in hindsight that it was really just the first quarter uh, of 2021 that was a problem, then, you know, maybe the liberals uh, can succeed in their vaccination plan and maybe it will reflect well on them in the end. Who knows? Uh, Time time will tell. Uh, But, you know, at this point, Canadians want vaccines now and they're certainly not getting them. Um, uh, that My quarterly comment reminded me of something else we learned from uh, Minister Anand yesterday in her testimony, because I, I mentioned these highly secretive vaccine contracts. She did say that the contract, and that was thanks to a questioning by an NDP MP, uh, she did say that the that the contracts are based on a quarterly delivery schedule. So one of the many questions we've been asking without answers for weeks now is, you know, are these companies uh, facing penalties if they said they were going to deliver and they're not delivering? Like, what's in the contract? And we didn't get any answers. And then yesterday we learned that uh, the delivery schedule is actually only quarterly, meaning that the companies only have to produce X amount every three months, right? Not on a weekly or monthly basis, which sort of is a bit illuminating in terms of why, why these shipments are dropping. And both Pfizer and Moderna say that they're committed to their quarterly targets. That being the case, though, and, and you're right. I mean, even uh, Major General Fortin sort of hinted about that yesterday. Uh, for that, for them to beat this quarterly commitment, I think, there's going to be an armada of planes that are going to be here uh, the latter part of March, I guess, to try to make that work. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd like to be at the airport to see that happen. They'd be coming in one after another, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, well, we all would, but don't forget that Health Canada says that, uh, you know, even telling me when I ask specifically, but even telling us the delivery day for vaccine is uh, sensitive information and secure information, and they won't yeah. even say what day it's arriving. So, yeah. 
<laughs> we shall we'll see. And, and so many different things going on here. I mean, even the revelation, I know when you were questioning the minister the other day, uh, that uh, she didn't know the details of the contracts and of the negotiations, which begs the question, well, who does? And, and, uh, and you know, who actually negotiates this? I mean, you know, as, with her minister, you'd think that she'd have some knowledge of that, even if she wasn't at the table about what was going on. So uh, a lot of questions still to be answered here, uh, which is why we look forward to reporting every night on Global National to try to get some clarity on this. Uh, good luck with it today. We'll be watching at 6.30 tonight. And uh, thanks again for the time today, Abigail. Thanks for having me. Take care. Abigail Beeman, of course, Ottawa correspondent for Global National, uh, trying to keep track of what's going on with the vaccine situation, which uh, seems to change almost on a daily basis. But uh, the, uh, the government, and uh, for that matter, also Major General Fortin, still holding to the commitment that uh, by the end of March, everything is going to be on track again. We hope so anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford yesterday uh, hinted that uh, he could be making an announcement on Monday, as early as Monday anyway, about uh, reopening the economy and getting into some of the lockdown stuff that's been going on. Dan Kelly is with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He's been a guest on the program many times, of course. Uh, yesterday, he was talking with our uh, global colleague, Kelly Cutrera in uh, Toronto. And uh, Kelly says he's looking forward to an announcement the Premier Ford suggested could be coming as early as Monday. We're sure hoping that Premier announces that uh, businesses can start to gradually reopen at the same time frame as schools are reopening across the province. Gosh, we felt like that there is a safe pathway. And and for some reason, in Ontario alone, we've been locked into this thinking that it's either all open, business as usual, or fully locked down. Most provinces are way ahead of us in announcing plans to reopen swaths of their economies. So that seems to be the, uh, the the thinking right now with the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. I want to bring Rocco Rossi into the conversation. Rocco, of course, is the CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, uh, and uh, he and I have had numerous discussions, of course, about uh, how this is going to roll out. Rocco, first of all, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, what's your anticipation? What's your feeling about what we might be hearing about on Monday? Uh, Bill, thanks for always uh, shining a light on this. Um, we, uh, as you can imagine, there's tremendous desperation, there's tremendous pain uh, in so much of the business community, particularly small uh, businesses have really taken it in the uh, in the teeth. And, and we'd like nothing better than to be able to reopen. But what we don't want either uh, is to end up getting uh, back to where um, uh, to where we were and have a third a wave and a third lockdown. Um, and so it's important not just to say we're going to reopen, but how is this reopening going to be different? What additional measures are going to be put in place so we don't simply go back to where we were? Uh, there is no question that lockdowns are blunt instrument. It's kind of like advertising. I know I'm wasting half of the money I'm spending on advertising. I just don't know which half. And similarly, on lockdowns, because we don't have enough testing capacity, particularly now with rapid testing, um, I I don't know where all of the cases are coming from, and I can't track it and contain. So, yes, I want to reopen, but I want to make sure that we up the testing capacity. I want to make sure that we're upping tracking and tracing. I want every individual to download the COVID alert App because we know the last time uh, we, uh, we, we reopened after bringing down uh, the numbers, 
they just came back up again. And, and we were at 4,000 in Ontario, you know, heading for 10,000. Um, and there's no disputing that the lockdown has brought those numbers down. You know, yesterday was uh, about 1,500. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's be smart about it. While at the same time, recognizing that there is tremendous pain and we're losing businesses every day. Well, and that's the concern I think a lot of people are sharing with you right now. But I want to go back to your point about the rapid testing because I know a year ago, Rocco, we we talked about this. uh, I don't know how many medical experts I had on that said that's going to be one of the keys. Uh, And and, and I I understand that the rapid testing at the time was thought to be a a poor cousin to the ordinary testing, you know, with the swab up the nose, all this sort of stuff. But there's a, as there has been with just about every other COVID protocol over the last seven or eight months, a change in attitude to say, you know, something for what you want to do here about opening businesses, the rapid testing works. It's a great idea. They should be using it in schools. They should be using it in businesses. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm not getting that from the government, though. They just don't seem to understand. I don't know if it's because they don't want to spend the money on this. I mean, it's available to them, and it's a technology that could actually avoid these sorts of things from happening in the future, meaning shutdowns. The, the cost of not doing it, quite frankly, is greater. Yeah. Uh, Nova Scotia has jumped on this in a much bigger way. It's being very helpful there. It's not perfect, but it's a much better screening tool, fast screening tool uh, than the than the PCR. It's 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 again, it's it's adding another layer. It's not the full answer, but we have many of our members and um, companies who put up their own money. Uh, to do the uh, the testing, to buy um, and do some initial benchmarking on this. The federal government has bought and sent to the provinces millions of these rapid tests. They have to be released. They have to be used. Um, you know, again, businesses have stepped up, have done a lot of the benchmarking together with medical experts to roll it out. Don't pretend that it's the total answer, but don't reopen without putting new tools in place to give people confidence that we're not just going to, you know, uh, be Groundhog Day yet again uh, and revisit what we've, what we've done because this, this roller coaster ride is deadly for businesses and it's also deadly for confidence. And we know, sadly, um, because of the supply issues that we're facing on the vaccination front, the light at the end of the tunnel that all of us have seen, boy, that tunnel is still a long ways away. You know, when I had uh, the education minister on the program yesterday, uh, Mr. Litchie uh, talked to us about, you know, closing and he said, you know, but if the numbers go up again, and I said, so what are you doing to prevent that? So they don't, they don't go up again. Uh, and they talked about some stuff that they put in there, which is really kind of a reannouncement. Right? But the, the same thing applies, though, to what's going on in the in the economic aspect of this, though, Rock. Uh, they, they have not looked after the infrastructure that needs to be in place. And your point is well taken. The federal government, with all their, their faults and warts, uh, have dumped millions or billions of dollars, rally into the province in, in financially and in the way of equipment. And, and it's, for some reason, the Ontario government seems to be stockpiling it. They're not spending the money. They're not handing out the, the, the testing kits. I, I don't know what they're waiting for, but isn't this a, as, as good a time or maybe the best time for them to start doling this stuff out and saying, here, let's make sure that we don't fall into that hole again? 100%. Um, we, we have to show that this reopening is different than the other reopening. We know that absent widespread uh, 
vaccination, there is no zero risk way to reopen. Like that's that's clear. And, you know, I'm I'm with Dan. I, I love the notion of, you know, reopen and look at capacity issues so that you're really uh, focused on limiting density, on limiting the chance of, of, of not having that physical distancing. But we need a whole suite of different steps to show that we're going to manage this crisis and not react to it. And that's my and that's my fear is reopen and go back to exactly where we were. And a lot of a lot of areas and I have businesses across Ontario in every region and many in in more rural or remote regions say, hey, why should we pay for the fact that, you know, Toronto and Peel uh, have huge numbers? We have, you know, zero or very few numbers. And it's true. But then I talk to the local hospitals or the local public health units in many of these areas and they say, yeah, that's true. But all it would take would be five cases and then, you know, it would blow up our capacity. So this has to be looked at holistically and we have to be investing in additional steps. And and, and yes, that's that's money, that's time, that's resources. But think of the cost of the alternative that we're living, which is the destruction of lives and livelihoods, companies going bankrupt, uh, you know, the need for more unemployment insurance and more checks in the other. So it's a pay me now or pay me later situation. And the impact that it's had here is, is monstrous. And I know you hear from your members on a constant basis. And, and, and when we talk about the reopening, and I know the big debate, and you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the big box stores versus the small stores. And But I'm, I'm not suggesting punitive action against the big box stores. That was a, a political decision. But I'm concerned about the impact it's going to have on small town Ontario, and that, those are a lot of your members, not just the Bloor Village or, you know, or, or downtown Hamilton or King and James. Or place. I'm talking about, you know, the, the towns that with the mom and pop businesses, the family businesses. Uh, I think I told you uh, before the lockdown, back in December, uh, we were up in Collingwood, and the Main Street back then, and this is before the lockdown, was almost deserted. Stores locked down because, but the ones that were open were complying. Yeah, only three customers. Everybody said, "Okay, we can do that. Not a problem. We can wait outside there." And everybody was in compliance with this. I'm concerned about how many of those people are actually going to open the doors again. You're right to be worried, and this isn't this isn't just buying and selling goods. Um, this is livelihood for the for the families running those businesses for them that business is essential it's not a non-essential business because it's their lives uh, and two it's our it's our streetscape it's our street culture it's the the people who support the local charity so this is this is we're talking the fabric of our towns and cities across the province and and why it's so important in our recent Ontario economic report that released one of the one of the big points stressed by, by our members is how powerful and how impo- important that buy local message is because no business gets into business wanting to survive getting checks from the government. They, they, they want to sell their good and service. They're proud of what they're, they're doing, their, their, their little shop, their little business, and, and they need our business like they've never needed it before. So whatever we can do for those that are are permitted uh, to be open, or that you can get delivery, that you can get curbside, that you can order online, 
um, you know, not everything has to go to Amazon.com. Like, do that extra click um, and and find that local source because you're you're investing not just in in a great you know product. You're investing in your neighbor, um, and and we need to do a lot more of that. Plus, we need to continue to do our part. I mean, the the, the COVID alert app. To, a, to help in the tracking and tracing so that we can be more surgical in clamping down whenever something um, breaks out. We all need to be downloading that. Um, you know, people worry about their privacy. It, there's no geolocating on it. The, no. it it's anonymous. It's, it, privacy is protected. And in turn, you're going to be saving lives and helping our frontline healthcare workers and helping in the reopening to keep the reopening longer and safer for everyone. Your message is, is something that needs to resonate, not, not just with the politicians, but I think with the people in this community who are getting frustrated. And you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and I was talking to a buddy of mine who's, who coaches minor sports, uh, baseball and hockey here in the Ancaster area. Uh, and, of course, they're not doing any of that this year. But he's, he does exactly what you're saying, buy local, you know, even if it's, it's curbside pickup, whatever the case might be. Because as he reminded me, and I think we need to remind everybody, he says, those are the businesses that sponsor my kids' teams. Uh, or, or those are the businesses that are members of the local Rotary that help out with charitable causes. It's not Amazon. It's not Costco that do that. It's it's the it's the mom and pop, the local businesses. You know, the fish and chip store, this the tire dealer, whatever the case might be, uh, and and they're the ones right now that are hurting, and they're the ones that we want to come back and thrive. But it's, even in this interim period, it's not going to happen if we don't support them. You're, you're bang on, uh, Bill. If if we leave with just one message, um, you know, buy local or say buy to local. Uh, that that is as simple as as I can put it. Yeah, because it, it's it, like I say, there's you know the the big cities, Ottawa, Toronto, Hamilton, bigger cities, they'll they'll find a way to survive, and you know there's there's ways that they can revive, and there's programs in place that they can do this. But I'm, I'm worried about the the you know the Grimsby's, the, the I mentioned Collingwood and places like that. Uh, you know they may not have the resources to do that, and if, if Main Street and Collingwood goes dark, I don't know how they're going to get it back. Or some of these other great towns, business improvement areas, which are a key part of small business, and you've been advocating that for years, are are, are really in a bind right now because they're figuring how are we going to come out of this? Because you can't always count on government assistance. A lot of the times they pay into those things themselves to try to make this thing work. And if there's nothing coming in through the business and the store, uh, that kind of falls apart too. I mean, there's a, there's a real domino effect here, isn't there? We've got to help make the cash registers sing. And I know that lots of individuals are facing their own uh, financial headwinds. So I, I, I don't want to make light of that, but, um, but this has not been an equal opportunity destroyer event. Um, you know, as we dig into the numbers, there are lots of businesses um, that have, you know, continued on, whether they're essential businesses or, and there's some in the technology areas and so on who've, who've really taken off uh, and the people working in essential services and those industries where, um, because of ability to work from home, continue to get that that paycheck and aren't you know aren't having to get uh, dry cleaning every week or spend as much on transportation, you know, ensuring that uh, you know one night a week you order in takeout 
that 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 delivery that that makes an enormous difference to those businesses. And as I talk to them, and they're saying, you know, my God, my community is really rallying, uh, rallying around us. This is, you know, we're we 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 talk about being in it together. Let's make it real. Um, and and it's through our choices, through our purchases, and through our own actions on masking, on distancing, because, you know, make no mistake, everyone complains about the lockdown, but the lockdown did bring the numbers down, mm-hmm. did turn around hospitalizations and deaths. And, and it will all, they will always default to this blunt instrument, which we know is, is hurting more than it has to, because we don't have enough of the data. So government's got to step up on the testing individuals have to step up in in helping on tracking and tracing and we've got to take seriously um you know that distancing the fact you know i talked to so many MMA members and then they they say well you know there was a poll at christmas time that showed that half of canadians gathered in big events beyond their own family bubble yeah and you think why why did i why did i invest my life savings in putting up plexiglass and in limiting capacity, if people are just going to blow it up, uh, and 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 so we are our brother's keeper in this case because of this pandemic, and we need to act that way. We're at war with a virus. We need to act that way each and every day. Uh, just about out of time. I. The Premier did say that, by the way, the reason he's holding off on Monday because he says there was a cabinet meeting this afternoon, and I guess they're going to be discussing this. And and I've had Vic Fidelli, the economic development minister, on. I've talked to the Premier about this. And before they get up out of that table this afternoon, Rocco, I just hope and pray that somebody around there says, okay, we can't just say, okay, guys, open the doors again, good luck. Uh, they've got to ask themselves, are we giving them every tool that they need to succeed this time? And, and whatever Amen. it takes. And that's got to be part of that discussion this afternoon. Amen. Rocco, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Uh, We'll stay in touch and uh, stay well. Stay positive and test negative, my friend. You betcha. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, delve into, uh, well, politics on both sides of the border. We'll get to the U.S. situation in just a couple of seconds. But uh, during their opposition days this week, the federal conservatives are actually calling for a special House of Commons committee devoted to Canada-U.S. relations. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole explains the motion for that committee and explains how he'd like to see it work. Canada's Conservatives are introducing a motion to create a special committee on one of the most important pillars of our recovery, the economic relationship between Canada and the United States. Trade between Canada and the U.S. exceeds $1.5 billion per day. But by American procurement rules and an absence of government advocacy for North American energy security puts all of that in jeopardy. Prime Minister Trudeau has had projects cancelled by the U.S., multiple times. After five years, we have no softwood lumber agreement, and the Liberals have let down unionized workers in the steel, aluminum, and auto sectors. Uh, that's Mr. O'Toole's take on that. Uh, however, when you're in a minority parliament uh, and you, you don't want an election to call it anytime soon, I guess you have to say, yeah, that's not a bad idea. We can talk about that, which is exactly what uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau talked about. Uh, Laura Babcock, President of Power Group, joins us to talk about this and other things politics. Uh, Laura, great to have you back. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. 
Uh, this sounded to me when I heard this yesterday very much like Aaron O'Toole figures. I know this is a minority parliament, but boy, we'd, we'd really like to hand in, have a hand in governing, too. Well, it's a good move, and we haven't seen a lot of good moves from O'Toole. After January 6th and the attack in the U.S., they've been under a lot of heat for any affiliations within their party to right-wing groups. You know, it's been a difficult time for him to get really any traction. And Trudeau was doing really well in the polls and his handling of COVID from the point of view of promises and compassion. But he is weak now because of the deliveries coming in and, and not being able to get the vaccines here. You remember when it all started, Trudeau was bragging that they had ordered you know, the most of any country mm-hmm. um, for population. And now they're in a place where after the first minister's meeting, the first ministers are demanding to see the contracts, right? So Trudeau has to look as though he is being reasonable, that he understands the importance of trade with the U.S. If you look at trade, it's, they're, we're each other's biggest export partners, but China's the U.S.'s biggest trade partner. But for Canada, it's not even close. The U.S. is everything to our trade. We have to have a good relationship. And I think if they do it properly, Trudeau can leverage the rapport he already had previously with Biden and the Biden administration. And by having this committee happening in the House, they can actually make it top of mind all the time. What does that look like? What about all these deals? What about these different pipelines? What are we going to do around the, the uh, Buy America policies that Biden's putting forward? We need a good, robust economic recovery in this country. So really, there is no harm in having this committee struck to really make it a focal point. And Trudeau, frankly, needs to have some wins uh, because he isn't having a lot lately. So if he's looking to be open to being under scrutiny about his relationship with the U.S., it probably benefits Canada and the Conservatives. But how much of this is politics? I understand the economic impact. And, and you know, the, the, the headlines, of course, would dictate this has to happen. Okay, Keystone gets canceled. Uh, we knew a year and a half ago Keystone was going to get canceled. I mean, any Democrat that was going to win the White House was going to cancel it. They all said so. Uh, and so this was not new. This It, it wasn't something that sprung us. Not that I agree with it necessarily. I, I can understand in the long term it makes all kinds of sense. But from the economic standpoint, yeah. Uh, but O'Toole yesterday with his comments, and we just played part of that clip, and I was talking about the aluminum tariffs well that had nothing to do with trudeau i mean that was trump uh and by the way they did rescind them eventually because our, our government did do this uh they did go down there and they did lobby a lot of the u.s state governors and state legislatures to try to get that done as they did with the steel tariffs so i guess my question is i don't disagree that it's not a bad idea but what do they really think they can do accomplish here that, that you know hasn't been accomplished before they're not going to get them to change their mind on keystone Oh, I agree. But there's, you know, there's other pipeline projects that you have uh, some conservatives and certainly Canadians concerned about. There was a job loss with Keystone. We have to have a, a good recovery from this pandemic and we've got to, you know, work well with the U.S. Is it politics? Of course it's politics. And, and as I said, this is the first kind of opportunity I've seen the conservatives under O'Toole really position themselves as being part of governing instead of just sitting on the sidelines and criticizing, right? And calling on and constantly putting down the Trudeau government over the vaccine procurement and everything else. So if they want this committee, if they are going to help the Trudeau government, you know, it's not always a bad thing to put pressure on a government to be more accountable and to make something more front of mind. I don't think that it's going to move the needle a tremendous amount. You know, the Biden administration, it almost, if you've been watching Bill, as I know you have been, he's got 60% approval ratings now in some polls. 
He's a very popular president. He's still, albeit in honeymoon phase, a little bit. But Americans are behind Biden. If Biden decides to put in an America first kind of purchasing or America first with trade, he's probably going to have a lot of support. So it's not as though a committee in our House is going to make a huge difference in all of that. But I don't think it ever hurts to keep these critical issues for our economic recovery front of mind. And it's not going to hurt uh, the conservatives, but also if they are part of this solution, right, then, then they are also held a little bit to account about this. They can't just sit on the sidelines and chirp. <laughs> you know, they mm-hmm. wanted this committee. They're going to be a part of this committee, presumably. Uh, then, you know, some of the questions will be coming back on them and their involvement and in how they handle this committee. So if they want to have a role in trying to fix some of these trade issues, then, you know, they'll be held accountable for it. It's, it's going to be fascinating, though, to see how it turns out. I know the, yeah, the other pipeline you're referring to, of course, is the Enbridge Line 5, uh, which uh, ends up in Sarnia, but it goes through Michigan. Uh, Biden has not commented on that, but I know Governor Whitmer in Michigan actually wants it canceled. Uh, so there's going to be some pressure on that, too. So maybe that is something that they can discuss. But as, as to the Buy American thing, I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I think we all should be. But, you know, we're reminded historically, though, Laura, that back in 2008, 2009, coming out of the recession, the Obama administration adopted to buy American policy, and we were pretty nervous about that too, but it sort of morphed into a buy North American policy, not with you know, with everything, but there were some exceptions made and some latitude given uh, so that we were allowed to bid on contracts, and U.S. Steel com- or American Steel Companies and Canadian Steel Companies were working cooperatively for a lot of stuff like that. I, 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 so I, I know what the rhetoric is, buy American, and that's great, and it's going to win them a lot of support south of the border. But do you get the sense that there might be some flexibility here once they sit down at the table? Well, I do. And I think that working with the Biden administration is completely different you know, than working mm-hmm. with Trump. I mean, Trump was irrational and incalcitrant and really um, did some bizarre things with trade and everything else. Now we're back to more of a traditional operating system in the U.S., more traditional opportunities for democracy, for diplomatic relationships, for negotiations. And I think that there is an awareness from Biden, especially even, as you say, from the Obama time. I mean, he was there then. He would understand what those changes were, what those allowances were to keep our relationship with their biggest export partner working well. So there's always opportunity. I think we knew that that Keystone was going to be one of the first things he did because that was what he campaigned on. But overall, the relationship between Canada and America, we're on a new footing now. And so there's absolutely opportunity. One thing that I think Canadians will respond well to this committee being struck in the Commons is that we want to make sure that that opportunity is leveraged. You know, we've, we are we are all dealing with so many things, so many economic impacts in our countries that if they can build something that is, as you say, more of a buy North America or more of a respect for the many exports that we send to the U.S., that's a good thing. Getting around the table is always a good thing, especially when you have an administration in the U.S. that is willing to have those kind of mature, thoughtful discussions and, and create policy that will benefit you know them primarily, but there might be some interest in also supporting Canada to some extent based on our historic relationship and based on the and how integrated our economies are. Got a few minutes left, and I've been watching some of the comments you've been making on social media over the last couple of days about U.S. politics. We are just days away, a couple of days away from the beginning of the second impeachment trial for Donald Trump, but that's not even the headline in the states. Uh, it's it, what went on on Capitol Hill yesterday with the Republican or QAnon, really, uh, House of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, what a bizarre circumstance! I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. People would just say, "Come on, that's never going to happen," but it's happening. 
and it's frightening. I mean, yes, sure, Liz Cheney won the secret ballot vote uh, that kept her in a power position, but that was secret ballot. When we had to actually have the votes counted about whether or not Marjorie should lose her um, committees, the education and budget committees, it was an unprecedented thing that had to happen, but the Democrats had to go ahead and do it. And only 11 Republicans kind of crossed the floor on that and said, yeah, this woman who not only believes all these things, but has called for the lynching of Obama and has threatened violence against people who are still in the House or colleagues, right? I mean, stuff that she has said, not just stuff said prior to her becoming an elected official, but stuff that she has posted, the beliefs that she's espoused, that, that kind of mealy mouth semi-apology thing she did, uh, she still got 199 Republicans on the record to say that, no, she shouldn't lose those positions on the, on the Education Committee, for goodness sakes. She didn't believe in the Sandy Hook shootings and amongst among, uh, many other things. Now, she did walk that back a little bit, but she did kind of a victory lap after that vote, and she's raising money off of it, and she's using very Trumpian language that she will remember those who supported her, the implication being that she will, you know, punish them those who didn't. I mean, this is she is the closest thing to the Trumpian kind of rhetoric and tone um, that we have seen since Trump left. And the fact that Republicans publicly are still supporting that uh, is, is, I think, pretty, pretty um, should be very concerning because you don't have to look very far to see just how extreme her views are. And she can distance herself from QAnon now. But if she then repeats that the media is the problem and, and then repeats some of these other insidious things that QAnon believes. Has she really disavowed them? I don't think so. And so um, it was good for the Democrats to make that unprecedented move to get her off of those power positions. But coming into the impeachment, if you've got 199 Republicans who are willing to support someone as fringe as her, imagine what they're going to do with the impeachment. I, I realize we're talking about the House, not the Senate, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite amongst the Republicans to publicly stand up against Trump and QAnon and all of those things that are threatening America. No, and we saw that with some of the comments from Senator Rand Paul, and that's actually, as you mentioned, where the trial is actually going to take place. But but it's a, it's a pretty broad uh, interpretation of free speech, though. You know, the comments that uh, that uh, Taylor Green made yesterday, uh, suggesting that she has every right as as an American citizen, uh, but is is blaming the wildfires in California on a, a laser that the that the Jewish people are shooting down from outer space? Is that free speech, or is, is you know that that seems a little bizarre, really. And that, that's what she's hanging her hat on, that, that sort of stuff. These, she can say she's not with QAnon anymore, but she's still singing from the song sheet. Oh, for sure. And, 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 and very much played the opportunity yesterday when she got her speech. I mean, she has had so much publicity, to your point off the top. You know, we're coming into Trump's second impeachment, and she's everything. She's had so much publicity, and part of that is the Democrats want that because they want her to be the face of the Republican Party. They want all of the damaging brand elements that go with her and her terrible, terrible uh, videos and all the things that she said and believes in, they want that, right? Because then it, it makes it very difficult for the Republicans to look even remotely reasonable. So they're going to do that. They're going to try to brand the Republican Party after her, and they're giving her a lot of time on all their shows and everything else to do that. But she also used the moment herself to perpetuate some of these lies. And if you've been watching, as, as I have, Bill, the QAnon supporters who have broken free of QAnon 
and they explain how they got sucked into it. They got sucked into it, a lot of them, because they'd lost their jobs, they were home isolated, they were online all the time, they felt hopeless, and they found something that uh, initially started with, you know, the news media is fake, and then descends them into these bizarre, terrible belief structures. And so as they're pulling out of that, you know, I, I think we should be alarmed, not just in the U.S., but also here in Canada, while we are in a pandemic and while we are in, you know, potentially a, a depression and, a, and very tough times, uh, people are very open and easily manipulated by conspiracies that make them feel part of something, that make them feel smarter than, than other people, that make them feel like they really have a sense of belonging and purpose. And so she went up there yesterday and she's perpetuating some of those underlying beliefs. And, and I think that is very damaging and we shouldn't take it lightly just because of some of the crazy things she said. Well, no, and just to, uh, to connect the dots on this one, you know, in, in a related story, of course, you know, the, the Canadian, well, not the Canadian government, the Canadian security system, of course, now, uh, has, has now branded the, the, the Proud Boys as, as a terrorist organization. Uh, and, and, you know, we can't look at that from the say, well, boy, that, thank God that's not happening here. It is. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, we should remind ourselves the Proud Boys, the first few chapters started in Canada, uh, and gravitated down there where they've, they've blossomed and everything else. So the, the 49th parallel is not a border to, to bigotry and, and to racism. Uh, and we need to be cognizant of that. We do. You know, our border, uh, is the, the longest undefended border in the world, and that's just for like physical things. <laughs> you know, we have been absorbing U.S. popular culture and U.S. politics our whole lives. You know, we have many, many stations, and, and you know, many of our favorite shows are American shows, and that's just the nature of it. And so we have here in Canada a real problem with white supremacy. You know, you remember two summers ago, we were down on Saturdays, a bunch of our civic leaders yep. here in Hamilton, standing up against those groups. And we did it because we knew that if you ignore it, you empower it. And so I'm thrilled that Canada set the standard internationally, really, of making a white supremacist group at the level of international terrorism. In the U.S., they're having a robust debate right now about whether they should have a domestic terrorism law. And there's concerns from human rights groups that that could turn into, you know, prosecuting other groups like BLM, etc. So there's a lot of concern around that law. In Canada, we didn't do that. We didn't dilute the definition of terrorism. The Proud Boys met that definition of terrorism. And now they can't get any, you can't give money to them. They can't, you know, they're going to cut them off on all kinds of different ways so that's great and it's you know it's something that's getting canada great international acclaim for doing it but it doesn't mean that the problem is solved <laughs> you know right here yeah. in hamilton right now we've got issues we're dealing with around racism and white supremacy uh yeah well that's so much for the board of education but i digress <laughs> uh, anyway uh we're out of time I'll love, we'll have to pick this up another time always a pleasure laura thanks so much for this thank you Bill. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.